All right, good morning, everybody. Really glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one. should be one near you in the pew rack or maybe behind you, in front of you. Or snuggle up next to a neighbor who has their Bible open so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, we saw Paul practice what he's preaching by serving as a conduit of comfort to the Corinthian church. Remember, he wrote with raw vulnerability about a time of intense suffering that he experienced in Asia. It was so intense, in fact, that he was convinced he was going to die. In fact, maybe even like Elijah, he wished he would die. And in this dark night of the soul, God brought comfort to Paul in two ways. First, by teaching him a theological lesson, namely that man must not trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. This is a truth that the Corinthians needed to put deep into their hearts, as Pastor Dylan said, deep into their hearts and preach to themselves so that when the pain is overwhelming, when the burden is too great to bear, they will be able to turn to the Lord. And we must do that as well, as our tendency is to trust in ourselves, not in God. Our tendency is to try to rescue ourselves, deliver ourselves, and not wait on the Lord. Secondly, God comforted Paul by delivering him. And what that deliverance looked like Whatever it looked like, it gave Paul hope that God would continue to deliver. After all, he says God is the God who raises the dead. So Paul would face the near future, what what trouble was coming tomorrow, and he would face the far future of eternity with confidence that God will deliver his people. And friends, he will deliver his people. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be no more affliction No more suffering, no more tears, no more darkness, no more night, no more death. As we read in Revelation chapter 21, those first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. I think that last part is my favorite. Uh, That at the end he says, write it down because these words are faithful and true. You can rest in confidence that he will make all things new. Brothers and sisters, we've got to Preach this to ourselves, lest we forget a new day is coming. Well, as practically helpful as last week was, we tried to not lose sight of the overall purpose of the text. This passage is a benediction. Paul is speaking well of God. He has called God the Father of mercies in this passage. He's called God the God of all comfort. And now he's referring to him as the God who raises the dead. We want to understand that all of this is about him. And all of this serves to inspire our praise of him. Don't forget that. For even, even our text today is not just about surviving difficult times, not just relying on each other in difficult times. It's ultimately about the glory of God, and I hope that you see that clearly in the text today. So today we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, we're going to spend all of our time on chapter 1, verse 11. I decided not to tag that on to the end of last week, but to give it a whole week of itself. I think there's a really important lesson for us here. But I want us to read 8 through 11 so that we have at least some of the context of what we're looking at here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. This is God's word. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, And will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. Verse 11. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. So that many thanks may be given 
by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word today. Lord, as we study your word, we want to not be hearers only, but doers of your word. We don't want to just be informed, we want to be transformed, and we believe that that is your desire through your word, that your design of your word is that it would transform us with power. And so we trust that as it goes out today, as we study it, as we read it, as we think about it, as you speak to us through it, that it will accomplish your purpose. Not come back empty, but will accomplish exactly what you design in this place. So we submit ourselves to you, to your word. Have your way with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in this one verse, and maybe in this larger passage, in many ways, Paul is showing us the way. He's showing us the way to live together when times are hard. When trouble comes, how do we live together? And the first thing he showed us last week was the importance of sharing with one another. That's the first thing I want you to remember today is how important it is that we will share with one another. He said in verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. And it's not easy to talk like this. It's not easy to talk about the difficult things that are going on in our lives. It's not easy to share our struggles with one another to admit to one another that we don't have it all together, to acknowledge that we are not strong enough to bear our own burdens. We don't like to share these things because we are concerned about what other people would think of us. We are concerned that other people might think that we are weak and needy. And Paul had arguably more reason to be concerned about that than we do today because he had this group of people who were opponents of his, who were pointing to all of his suffering as evidence that he was not loved by God and could not be taken seriously as an apostle. So if you think, oh, I don't want people to know I'm weak, oh, I don't want people to know I'm needy, the apostle Paul had every more, much more reason to feel that way about the people around him because he had people accusing him of that very thing. And yet, what did he do? He shared. He didn't deny his neediness. He didn't run from his weakness. He admitted it. With vulnerability and transparency, he admitted his neediness. He admitted his weakness. He shared it with the church. Brothers and sisters, we must share our burdens with one another. Point number one, we must share our burdens with one another. Let me ask you, which would be worse? To share your affliction and risk embarrassment or to be crushed under the weight of your suffering in isolation? Which would you prefer? To share your burdens with one another and risk that someone might think you are weak. Or to keep it to yourself and get crushed under the weight of it in isolation in a corner. It would be better off if we would share it. The second thing that we learn from Paul here is that he is showing us that we must invite people to pray. He invites people to pray for him. New American Standard says in verse 11... You also joining and helping us through your prayers. That's a, that's a really literal translation of what's going on there with the language. But I think ESV does a better job of capturing the force of the expectation here in verse 11. When it starts a new sentence and says, you also must help us by prayer. He's been vulnerable with them. He's talked to them about his struggles. And now he expects and invites them to pray for him. Remember, Paul was an apostle. Paul was an authoritative leader of the church. 
Paul served as the greatest missionary we've known. He was preaching the gospel in the face of great danger. He was planting churches and nourishing them with the word all over the known world. He was sorting out all sorts of theological and behavioral problems in those churches. And we, therefore, rightly see the Apostle Paul as a giant of the faith, as a hero of the faith, a guy who is out in front of the pack and leading the way. And yet, the Apostle Paul is constantly inviting people to pray for him. He's constantly asking for help, specifically help by praying. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Pray also for me, that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. In Philippians, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. In Colossians, he says, Pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, Finally, brothers, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Paul, the hero, Paul, the giant, constantly writing and saying, I need help. I need help and I need you to pray for me. I wonder how often we are asking others to pray for us. How often are we reaching out to someone and saying, hey, will you pray for me? I wonder how often when we do that, we're saying, will you pray for me in this very specific way? Will you pray for these very specific things? If Paul, the apostle Paul, was constantly in need of prayer, constantly asking his brothers and sisters for help, how much more should you and I be doing the same? How much more should you and I be reaching out to one another and saying, I need help, and I need you to pray for me? One more thing to notice here before we move on is that this invitation to prayer fits perfectly with the theological lesson that Paul learned through his sufferings. Remember, back in verse 9, he says, We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see, Paul knows that he really needs the Lord's help here, not the Corinthians' help. So when he reaches out to them for help, he doesn't say, hey, would you write some letters to your congressman? Hey, would you take up a collection? Or even, hey, would you come visit me for a while and just be an encouragement to me? No, he asked them to help him by praying because the help that he needs is help that comes from the Lord. And we learn that in Psalm 20, when the psalmist says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Paul learned that you can't trust chariots. You can't trust horses. You've got to trust in the Lord. He learned that through suffering. And so when he reaches out for, for help, he reaches out for help in prayer because ultimately what he needs is help from the Lord. And that's what we need as well. The third lesson we learned from Paul here is that he expected that help would come from the Lord, right? Look at it in verse 11. So that thanks may be given by many persons on our, our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. He's confident that there will be favor bestowed upon him. There will be grace shown him, mercy given to him through the prayers of many. And this also fits with the theological lesson that Paul learned in his suffering. And he's passing that lesson on to the Corinthians, namely that God delivers. Do you remember that? Don't rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead, who has delivered us, who will deliver us, who will yet deliver us. He is confident in his expectation that God will deliver. And he will deliver because he is the God who raises the dead. Now I want you to know that that deliverance that comes from the Lord doesn't always come in the form we expect. Right? We cry out for deliverance. We trust him to deliver us. And that deliverance does not always come in the ways we expect. He does not always heal. 
He does not always set free. He does not always rescue. Even when he does, it's only temporary. Even when he does heal, and we cry out for healing, it's only temporary. Even when he does rescue here, it's only temporary. We were talking the other night with a group of men that none of us are getting out of this thing alive. And friends, that's where our great hope is found. Not in temporary rescue, not in temporary healing, but in ultimate resurrection. For those who are in Christ, the grave is not the end of the line. For those who are in Christ, when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord. That sounds like deliverance, right? For those who are in Christ, when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord. That sounds like deliverance. And our bodies go into the ground, awaiting the day when those bodies will come out of the ground, right? Transformed and renewed. And we will dwell in those resurrected bodies with the Lord forever and ever together. That's where our ultimate hope is found. So when we cry out for deliverance, he might not give us a temporary deliverance. But even when he does, recognize that's only temporary. Our ultimate hope is in the day that is coming, in the resurrection of the dead, and our eternal dwelling with him forever and ever. So maybe, maybe the best deliverance he could provide is to take us to be with him. Maybe when we're crying out in our pain, we're crying out in our sorrow, best deliverance he could give is that he would take us to be with him. Let me remind you that this hope of future glory, this hope of resurrection is for believers only. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no hope of resurrection. No hope of glory. There's only, as the author of Hebrews says, the terrifying expectation of judgment, which is what we all deserve, right? We all deserve eternal judgment. In light of God's holiness his righteousness, his justice, and our utter depravity, our total sinfulness. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath forever and ever. But he made a way for a sinful man to be reconciled to the holy God by sending Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Think about that. We deserve only condemnation. Only wrath. And yet the holy God made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to be redeemed, for us to be saved and cleansed and adopted into his family by sending his own son to die on the cross. And on the cross, the justice of God is satisfied in the atonement of Christ. The mercy of God is displayed in the salvation of sinners. And God offers this salvation, this justification, this forgiveness. He offers this to us as a free gift of his grace And we receive that free gift by believing, right? We receive it by faith, by trusting in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to invite you today in in light of all this talk about hope of future resurrection. I invite you today, if you have not, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from the direction you are heading, which is away from him, and turn toward him in faith and put all of your trust in him. Find all of your hope in him so that you can face today's trouble, And eternity's judgment with confidence. Confidence that is rooted in Christ alone. Paul shares. Paul invites people to pray. Paul expects deliverance from the Lord. 
And the fourth lesson we learn from Paul here, maybe the most important and the least familiar to us, he wants other believers to be informed and involved so that they are positioned to praise. He wants them to be informed of his suffering, involved in the praying, so that they are positioned to praise. Why does Paul involve all these people in Corinth in his trouble? Some might say, well, he he wants as many people as possible to be praying for him so that God will be more likely to hear those prayers and answer and deliver. As if the more people we are praying, the more God is manipulated to put in a headlock to do what we want him to do. Some people say that's, that's why Paul invites all of Corinth to be praying for him in this situation. I fear that our perspective on prayer is misguided, thinking along these lines that we can manipulate the Lord to do our will in prayer, when the reality is that prayer is about us submitting to his will. Now, don't get me wrong, it's good to have a lot of people praying. It's good to have a lot of people praying for you when you are afflicted, when you are being crushed under the weight of affliction. It's good to have a lot of people praying for you, not so that you can manipulate God into doing what you want. Rather, we want to have a lot of people praying so that a lot of people can see what the Lord is doing and praise him for his provision, praise him for his grace, praise him for his kindness. The language in the text is many people, many prayers, many thanks. Right? Many people, many prayers, and many thanks. Maybe the best way to communicate the point here is from the negative. Let me say it like this. When you keep your burdens to yourself, when you keep your affliction internal, when you make it private, when you don't invite others to pray, you are robbing them of the opportunity to praise the Lord in thanksgiving for the favor and blessing he bestows upon you. you. You may think that you are protecting your brothers and sisters from the burden that you are bearing, but in reality you are robbing them of the opportunity to worship the Lord. When you keep it to yourself, you are robbing your brothers and sisters from the opportunity to worship the Lord, and worse yet, you are robbing God of the praise that he deserves from their lips in response to what he's doing in your life. That's why Laura... Rick actually read from Acts chapter 12 a while ago. That story of Peter getting arrested. What, why did he get arrested? Did he rob a bank or hurt somebody? No, he was preaching the gospel, right? And the religious leaders didn't like it, and so they arrested him. And what did the church do as Peter was carted off to jail? They got together and they prayed. Do you remember that? Did you catch that in the text? They got together and prayed. They were in a place praying. And what did God do as they were praying? He delivered Peter. He delivered Peter. Like setting free in that most amazing way. So much so that Peter thinks it's all a dream until he like gets all the way outside and then he kind of comes to his senses, right? And when he comes to his senses and realizes the Lord has delivered him, do you remember what he did in the story? He went about his merry way, got as far out of town as possible, kept it to himself. No, what did he do? He went directly to where all of his friends were gathered together. His brothers and sisters were gathered together and they were praying for him. Why did he do that? It was clearly not because he wanted to be amongst them. It was clearly not because he wanted to find safety in their presence because he doesn't stay with them. He just kind of pops in. He's like, shh, I'm out. And then he goes another way. Why did he come and talk to them? Because he wanted them to see what the Lord had done in his life through their prayers. And what does the text say? They were amazed. 
And usually when we see that in Acts, it has to do with glorifying God for what he has done. They're amazed at what the Lord has done. Peter wanted them to see that and rejoice over it. What if those people had not been together praying? What if they had said, we're going to pray, but we're going to pray in our separate places? Might have been okay, right? But it's better than no praying at all. But it says they were together and they were praying. And what if they had never seen what had happened in Peter's life? They wouldn't have had the opportunity to rejoice over what the Lord had done. This is what I'm getting at, right? That seems to be what the text is getting at. That many people praying results in many people giving thanks to God, which is the ultimate goal. In fact, the purpose statement there, the henna word, so that many thanks can be given to God. Not so that many deliverances will come my way. Not so that many releases from trouble will come my way. But so that many thanks will go to God. What's the ultimate purpose of all of this? So that God will get glory in the rejoicing of his people over his faithfulness. You see, Paul's purpose here is God-centered. The goal is not deliverance. The goal is many thanks. And this fits with the overall tone of benediction here. Right? It closes up the benediction perfectly. What's he been trying to do in this whole section but speak well of God? And now he's saying, I want you all to join in this so that you all will be able to speak well of God. So that you will give him thanks for his faithfulness. Speak well of him in praise. On January 4th, 1981, I hadn't even had my first birthday yet. Did you know that? January 4th, 1981. But John Piper preached this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, at the beginning of his first full year as pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church. And at the beginning of that year, he was inviting his congregation to pray for him and for other leaders of the church. The whole design of the, of the sermon was pray for, for us, inviting his people to pray for him. And he evidently printed an image that helped people understand the flow of this text. And since the internet didn't exist in 1981... We don't have an image of that. We don't have a copy of what he was talking about. So I got my graphic design team together, and we came up with this. That's, we might need to give those guys a raise, right? It's not so great. But it might be helpful to understand the flow of the text like Piper did for his people. You see, you've got the Apostle Paul down there in the left corner. He's looking good, right? Bald guy. You know we have a new image of Paul in the hallway back here. Jared Sperling has painted the Apostle Paul in response to our series on the Apostle Paul, just like he painted Elijah and Elisha and hang back here in this, in this hallway. You should go check that out. It's really cool. It's really good. And he's bald. We've got the Apostle Paul down here in the left corner. In the right corner, we've got the church. And I think that's a good image of the church because it's, it's not just a building. It's people, right? It's people. We, we've learned about that in, in the introduction to 2 Corinthians. The church is a gathering of God's people. In God's presence here, God's words, we got the church there. And at the top, we've got God as the king, right? The one who sits on the throne is the one who says, I make all things new, right? So the way this text goes is the Apostle Paul reaches out to the church, right? There's a line. Yeah, he reaches out to the church and he invites them to pray. He says, I want you to be informed, brothers, about my struggle. And I want to invite you to pray. You must join in praying. So the way ESV says it, it's like a command there. I don't know that it's necessarily that way in the text, in the language, but I think it carries that force in essence. You must join in praying. And so what does the church do? As they, they pray, they pray to the Lord on Paul's behalf. 
And Paul, as he asks them to pray, and they do pray, he expects God to deliver. And God does, right? He says, he has delivered us. And he will deliver us. And he will yet deliver us, right? And the Lord does. The Lord provides. He provides comfort. And what happens is the church now sees that happen. The church sees God provide comfort to the Apostle Paul and help for the Apostle Paul. And what do they do? They turn around and they thank God for that provision, right? They pray. God answers. And they are super encouraged. And so they say, way to go, God. They don't reach out to Paul and say, Way to go, Paul. He didn't do anything. He got help. He got help from the Lord. And so many things from many people rise up to the Lord. And then Paul sees all of that happen. This whole business of the church hearing about his affliction, praying to God, God answering them, giving thanks to God. Paul sees all of that happen. What do you think happens in Paul's heart? Well, he's super encouraged, right? He's like, this is, this is what I want. This is what I want. I don't necessarily want to be delivered from jail because he often says, even my imprisonment will result in the propagation of the gospel. He's not primarily concerned about his own freedom. He's primarily, primarily concerned about the glory of God. And when he shares with them and they pray and God delivers and they all give thanks, God is glorified and Paul is satisfied because that's his ultimate goal. And that should be our ultimate goal as well. That's a pretty good, helpful picture, right? And that's what we want to see happening here in the body. So for that to happen, a couple of things are going to have to take place. Number one, we got to recognize that we need help and admit it. Number one, we need help, so we admit it. We share our burdens with one another. We say, it's heavy, and I can't bear it any longer. We say, it's dark, and I can barely see the light. We say to one another, I am tired, and I don't think I can take another step. We say to one another, this hurts, and I don't know if I can go on. We need help, and we must admit it. That's number one. Number two, our help comes from the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. Look at Psalm 121 with me. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. And mountains there, I think, are, are intended to be seen in the negative, like a, a struggle to overcome, an obstacle to overcome. I look up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. When I encounter an obstacle, when I encounter an affliction, when I encounter a struggle and I look at it and say, where, where is my help going to come from? It doesn't come from my neighbor. It doesn't come from myself. It comes from the Lord. And this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We don't look to each other. We don't look to ourselves. We look to the Lord for help. Read on with me. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes the flesh his arm, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no hope. Son of Man there in the negative sense of other people. Isaiah 2, turn away from man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? How could he possibly help? Psalm 33, a king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a vain hope for victory, and by its great might it cannot save. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Proverbs 21, 
The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. So, pray. You need help? Admit it. Our help comes from the Lord. So, pray. Could it be that our prayerlessness is evidence that we trust ourselves and not in God who raises the dead? Could it be that our lack of prayer reveals that we trust something other than the Lord? That when we need help, we help ourselves. That when we need help, we depend on other people rather than turning to the Lord in prayer. This text is teaching us that we need help and our help comes from the Lord and so we pray. Third, he deserves all the praise, all the praise from all the people. And so we invite others to pray. So we invite others to pray for us so that they will be positioned to give many thanks. Don't deny your brothers and sisters the joy of thanking God with you by leaving them in the dark. Don't deprive one another of the joy of celebrating God's mercies by hiding your pain. And don't deny the Lord the praise that is due him by keeping your brothers and sisters in the dark. When you have that affliction and you go to your closet and you bear it alone, you are robbing your brothers and sisters of an opportunity. And you are robbing God of glory that he deserves. So share with one another. Listen, this has been a heavy week at First Baptist Church. Like there was a a few days there where every time the phone rang, every time the doorbell chimed when somebody came in the office, it was bad news. Like heavy, bad news. Sickness, death, stress, trouble. We encountered a variety of affliction this week. Several people shared it, talked about it. So we were able to come alongside and pray for them. And listen, even over the last couple of days, we've been able to thank God for his provision. We've been able to thank God for comfort. We've been able to thank God for deliverance even. We've been able to see his energy to persevere through the pain. We've been able to rejoice and give thanks to God for his mercy, for his grace, for his favor is the word New American Standard uses. We're thankful. We praise him for it. Because people shared their burden. They invited others to pray. People prayed. God showed mercy. And we were all positioned to give glory to God. All of this has me thinking, if only we had an opportunity week in and week out where we could get together and know about needs and pray together so that we're able to rejoice and give thanks together If only we had an opportunity to do that on the regular. Oh, wait. Every Wednesday night, that's what we do. Like every, you you can do it on Sunday morning, Sunday night, but Wednesday night, we have set aside time to gather together corporately to pray together. And oftentimes we are talking about very specific needs from the pulpit, talking about very specific needs amongst the body and praying to God for deliverance, praying to God for help, praying to God for comfort. And over and over in the last three years since we've been doing this, he has answered, he has shown, and it positions all of us to give glory to him. 
And it's a beautiful thing that about a dozen of you are taking advantage of at this point. And I'm thankful for the dozen of you who are here Wednesday in and Wednesday out. And I think you have seen this take place. And you love it. And I would love to see more of you involved in that. Not so that we'll leverage God and get him to do what we want him to do, but so that more and more of us will be positioned to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You have helped. You have comforted. You have healed. You have delivered. And we give you praise. So Wednesday night, 6 p.m., prayer meeting. I'd love to see you. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we, we need help. <clears throat> we need help admitting that we need help. We need help remembering that our help comes from you, ultimately. We need help committing to pray. Pray for one another. Trust you for one another. We acknowledge that you deserve all the praise. So I pray even in these moments that you will position us all to give many thanks to you as we join in helping by prayer, helping our brothers and sisters who are in affliction by prayer, that we'll be positioned to give you many thanks. Lord, we recognize that there are some among us who have got no hope at all no hope of future resurrection, no hope that you would help, no hope that you are near to them when they are suffering because they don't know you. Oh God, would you change that today? Would you invade their lives and teach them about your holiness, teach them about their own sinfulness, show them the glory of Christ dying in their place on the cross and rising again in victory. Lord, would you grant faith so that men and women and boys and girls can trust in Christ? Would you grant repentance so that they would turn from the way they're living and turn toward you? Would you save, not just for the good of those you would save, but for the glory of your own name? We pray all this in Christ's name.